It's not popular to talk about the wrath of God. Even in Christian circles, we want a God who is like us and who makes us feel good about ourselves. However, if God is holy and just, as the Bible teaches, then it's only reasonable that he would punish sin and judge those who rebel against him. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. As always, you can find thousands of more free resources at Radical.net. And in today's new sermon from Psalm 78, David Platt reminds us that God's wrath is one of his many perfections. And the greatest news in all the world is that God has sent his own son to take the wrath that we deserve by dying on the cross. Here's David Platt with a new sermon titled, Behold His Wrath from Psalm 78. And don't miss our Secret Church 18 update at the very end of this episode. Here's David. Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, uh, let me invite you to open with me to Psalm chapter 76. I had a whole introduction written out for this sermon, but uh, yesterday in in my quiet time, I was in Hosea chapter 10, a book that talks a lot about God's judgment upon sin and sinners. And I read verse 12, where Hosea says to God's people, he says, break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. And as soon as I read that verse, I was immediately reminded of revivals I've read about in church history where that that particular verse was prominent when God just broke up the hearts of his people in fresh, unexpected ways. In the middle of worship, people just would fall on their faces convicted of sin, confessing their sin, crying out for God's mercy, the monotonous routine of religion just totally broken. People's, who, people whose hearts were hard and callous were suddenly softened and God rained down his power and his presence in supernatural ways. And so I just, I was just provoked to pray for us in our gathering today. Just, I... Just praying, I, I don't want to be a part of the monotonous routine of religion, Lord. Like, I want to see your power and your presence raining down on your people in fresh ways, like, so that we, we hate sin like you hate sin. And we love and worship you in a way that's just not routine where our hearts are softened toward you. It's time to seek the Lord. I mean, look at our country and our culture. Look at the church in our country and our culture. Does anyone doubt that it is time to seek the Lord? It's time to humble ourselves before him and cry out for his mercy. Do we see this? So, Here's what I want to do, like this, this text that we just so happen to be in today leads us to cry out for the mercy of God. So I want us to hear it, I'm going to read it, and then try to explain it, and then let it just lead us into a time of prayer all across this room and at other campuses. 
where I've, I've just prayed that in the next few minutes even, God would break up any hard ground in our hearts and in a fresh way just convict us of the seriousness of sin and our need for the mercy of God. So, Psalm 76, this is the word of God. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you utter judgment. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath that you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. Let's, let's pray. Oh God, God, please help me to explain the truths that are here. As I do, I just I pray that in this room and other campuses, I pray that your spirit would convict our hearts, my heart, our hearts, to convict us of sin, soften our hearts, cause us to, in a fresh way, see our need for your mercy. Please, oh God, we, we don't want this just to be routine. Next few minutes, we, we pray. In your mercy, would you just rain down your presence and your power in this room and other campuses through your word? Right now, we pray this, we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what is God saying to us? Well, uh, Psalm 76 is divided into two halves. The first half of the psalm depicts a historical event when God poured out his wrath on a specific nation that had opposed him, had opposed his people. The second half of the psalm then takes that historical event and raises it to a whole other level to show that ultimately one day God's wrath will be poured out upon all people who oppose him. Now, we don't know for certain the specific historical event that's referenced in the first half, but the Greek translation of the Old Testament actually includes a note from the translators that this psalm specifically is referencing the Assyrians who at one point were attacking Jerusalem. So hold your place here in Psalm 76 for a minute and turn with me back to 2 Kings chapter 18. So feel free to use table of contents if you need to, but you've got to see the 2 Kings chapter 18. 
18. I want to show you the historical event that is likely behind Psalm 76. And even if Psalm 76 isn't referring to this particular event, it's definitely referring to an event like this. So back in 2 Kings 18, the Assyrians... Their army was on the assault against God's people. They were taking over city after city in Judah, and they got to the point where they surrounded the city of Jerusalem with 185,000 troops just ready to pummel that city. And the people were scared. You, you can imagine. So imagine a foreign army taking over major city after major city in the U.S., then finally surrounding Washington with hundreds of thousands of troops on all sides. They were scared. Hezekiah, the Israelite king, was saying, we need to trust God. Meanwhile, the Assyrian commander was threatening the Israelites. Look at 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 32. So halfway through the verse, the commander of the Assyrian army has come out and listen to what he says to the Israelites. He yells this to the Israelites. Halfway through verse 32, he says, do not listen to Hezekiah, the king, when he misleads you by saying the Lord will deliver us. He says, has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim, Hena, and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Oh, you, you, you don't say that. He should not have said that. The Assyrian commander basically just said, what God can stop us? We're the Assyrians. No God can stop us. Well, let us see. Turn over one chapter to 2 Kings chapter 19. Listen to what God says in response. So verse 22, God speaks to the Assyrians. He says, whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers, you have mocked the Lord. You have said, with my many chariots, I've gone up the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon. I felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. I entered its farthest lodging place, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters, and I dried up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. God says, have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops blighted before it is grown. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me because you have raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. Them are fighting words. Then listen to what happened. Look at verse 32. Here's what happened as a result. Verse 32, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return and he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord, for I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And then that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185 thousand in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. 
you catch that? Like an instant, overnight, 185,000 struck down dead. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed, went home, lived at Nineveh, and as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, and Dramalek and Sherezer, his son, struck him down with a sword and escaped in the land of Ararat, the king killed by his own sons as he knelt before a false god. So with that background, you come back to Psalm 76, and it's clear. There is only one God who is infinitely worthy of all worship. Psalm 76, verse 1. Now it makes sense. In Judah, where Jerusalem is, God is known. His name is great. Verse 2. His abode has been established in Salem. So Salem is shorthand for Jerusalem. His dwelling place in Zion. You know what's interesting about those words abode and dwelling place in verse two? Those same terms are used in other parts of the Old Testament to refer to a lion's den. The language here is awesome. It makes sense in light of Second Kings. In Jerusalem, God is like a lion in his lair. And he's ready to pounce on anybody who attacks his glory and his people. God is worthy infinite worship because, so see this, why? Because God is glorious above all. There's no nation, including mighty Assyria, that can stand against him. Verse three, he breaks their arrows, their shield, their swords, and weapons of war. Verse four, glorious are you, O God, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. Verse six, at your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. And it's interesting, you get down to verse 10, it's a baffling verse. The psalmist says, surely the wrath of man shall praise you, the rim of wrath you will put on like a belt. In other words, even God, even man's wrath against God will ultimately bring God glory because God has the final word. You survey the silent battlefield filled with slain Assyrian soldiers and stand in awe of the God whom they defied. God is infinitely worthy of worship because God is glorious above all. He is sovereign over all. It's a word we use often. Remember, for God to me, be sovereign means that he has all power and all authority over all things, which is exactly the point of 2 Kings 18 and 19. God said, Assyria, you're in my hands. Israel, you're in my hands. So see the world today in light of that reality. North Korea is not sovereign. Russia, not sovereign. Syria, not sovereign. Israel, not sovereign. The United States ultimately is not a sovereign nation. The United States, Israel, Syria, Russia, North Korea, God is sovereign over all of them. God is governing the world today with his power, his authority. And as such, God is to be feared by all. Verse seven, but you, you are to be feared, exclamation point. Who can stand before you once your anger is roused? Three more times, verse eight, the earth feared and was still. Verse 11, bring gifts to him who is to be feared. Verse 12, the one who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. Who in this room, who in other campuses, who of us can stand before this God and all of his holiness, glory, sovereignty, and wrath. No one can. Every mouth is silenced before him. Why? Because God is the just judge of all. Verse 8, from the heavens you utter judgment. The earth feared and was still when God arose to establish judgment. And this is where, it's that point where Psalm 76 takes things to a whole other level because it's not just about Assyria centuries ago. This is about every single one of us in this room and other campuses. Psalm 76 is teaching that one day 
every single one of us and every single person on the planet will stand before God as our judge. And he will be just. This is, this is huge because when we think about God's wrath, we need to realize that his wrath is just a demonstration of his judgment. The wrath of God just doesn't come out of nowhere. It's not some mere emotional outburst like we might think of wrath in people. No, divine wrath is the inevitable expression of divine justice, which is a good thing when you think about it. Right? We, we have in every one of our hearts a longing for justice, don't we? Like we see a gunman shoot and kill people across Las Vegas or a terrorist ride through crowded streets murdering men, women, and children. We long for justice to be served. When we see Nazi Germany systematically exterminate millions of Jewish men and women, like we long for justice to be served. When we see slavery in our history, injustice in our country today, we long for justice to reign. When we see the effects of sin in our lives, so adulterous spouses, abandoned children, so much hurt from sin all across our lives, something in us cries out, surely this is not all there is. And surely evil and injustice won't have the last word. We long for goodness and justice to have the last word. And the Bible makes clear that God, the good and just judge of the universe, he will have the last word. So this is a good thing, but it's also a terrifying thing when you realize who we are and you realize how we have responded to this God. Because when you realize who we are, you realize that whereas God is infinitely worthy of our worship, we are infinitely deserving of God's wrath. And this is where the amens will likely stop for a time. Because this is where we are confronted by the reality of sin in each one of our lives. And we've got to see this because I, I think we're okay so I was just meditating on this this week. Like, I think we're okay with pictures of God's justice and wrath when that justice and wrath are expressed toward people who have done particularly heinous things. Like, when we think about crimes in the Holocaust or horrible crimes done to children, people, people believe justice and wrath are right. But when it comes to our own lives, our own sin, all of a sudden, so many people believe justice and wrath are wrong. It's like 2 Kings 18 and 19. Like, okay, it's uncomfortable. We're okay to see God's wrath and justice on the Assyrians because they were opposing God to his face. But this is where we come to the startling reality in every one of our hearts, including my own. Ladies and gentlemen, we are Assyria. Every single one of us has opposed God to his face. And any thought otherwise is an overly high and biblically unfaithful view of yourself. Think about it. what does Scripture teach? God is glorious above all, but Scripture clearly teaches we have denied the glory of God. In the words of Romans 3.23, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have turned aside to so many other gods. Every one of us. All across this room and other campuses, we've turned to gods of money possessions, pleasures, sex, 
pornography success. We've turned aside to all kinds of worldly pursuits and worldly pleasures. We've centered our lives around ourselves. We have denied the glory of God. We have denounced the sovereignty of God. You and I, we have looked into the face of the God who is sovereign over all. And just like Assyria, we have denounced the rule and reign of God over our lives. You think about it. This is the God who beckons storm clouds and they come. Come, The God who says to the wind and the rain, you blow there, you fall here, and they do it. This is the God who says to everything in all creation, do this, and all creation obeys his bidding until you get to you and me. And you and I actually have the nerve to look in the face of God and say, no. You, you don't know what's right. I know better than you what is best for my life. We say that every time we sin. We have denounced his sovereignty, and in this we have failed to fear God. We have not feared the God who is to be feared. We feared so many other things instead. Fear such a prevailing problem in so many of our lives. We fear failure, ridicule, embarrassment. We fear the unknown. We fear sickness, death, dying, go on and on. Could it be the reason that why we fear so many things is because we do not fear God. We don't fear sin against God. We're so prone to treat it so lightly as if it's no big deal. And we're even stunned or offended by how serious sin is treated in Scripture. Think about it. Let's just be honest with each other for a minute. Like, take off the mask for a minute. Let's just be honest. Don't we sometimes think Scripture is a little over the top? Think about Genesis 19. Remember when Lot and his wife are fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah? God says, don't look back. And what, is, what does Lot's wife do? She looks back. And what happens? She, all of a sudden, just like that, turns into a pillar of salt. Gone. For a glance. All she did was glance. She's gone. You look at Numbers chapter 15. There's a man who's caught picking up sticks on the Sabbath. They bring him before God. They say, what shall we do? What does God say? Stone him. Stone him for picking up sticks. Second Samuel chapter 6, Uzzah reaches out just to grab the ark to keep it from falling. And as soon as he touches the ark, what happens to him? Falls over dead on the spot. Just because he touched the ark, he tried to keep it from falling. Story after story in the Old Testament. Like that. And some people think, well, that's just Old Testament. Like God doesn't do that in the New Testament. Well, on the contrary, Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they're offering, given their offering in the church, they lie, and what happens? Both fall over dead. That'll hurt your attendance the next Sunday. Can you imagine people falling over? dead in the offering? Like, it's not a recipe for church growth. Like, so let's just be honest. We read these stories. Don't we think, don't we think, isn't God overdoing it here? Isn't this overly severe? I mean, yeah, they sinned. Get that. But is that the punishment they deserve? And that question is so key to understanding how we view sin. Because when we think that this kind of punishment is severe, even unjust or not right, we think that because we have a man-centered perspective of sin. We think if people lie to us or 
disobey us. Like we wouldn't say they're worthy of death. Of course not. But this is the key. The key is not how severe the sin is. The key is the one who sinned against. Think about it. You sin against a rock, you're not very guilty. You sin against a man, you're guilty. You sin against an infinitely holy God, you are infinitely guilty. One, one sin. Remember Romans chapter 5? It was one sin that led to condemnation for all men. All the effects of sin and evil that we see in the world today, one sin in Genesis 3. They ate a piece of fruit. From that one sin came centuries of wars, terrorism, murder, all that you can think of, just evil, injustice, trafficking, natural disasters, hurricanes, tsunamis, tornadoes, cancer, disease, sickness, death, all of it came from one sin. And you and I in this room and other campuses, we have committed thousands of them against this God. We have no clue the seriousness of our sin. In fact, despite our sin against God, we have actually dared to judge God. We as sinners actually have had the audacity. We point the finger in God's face and we say, how can you judge us? How can a good God condemn sinners? As if we're the ones who are good and God is the one who is bad. As if we're the ones in the right and God is in the wrong. We actually say things like the words come out of our mouth. Well, I could never worship a God who, who what? Whose holiness is so much higher than you can even begin to comprehend whose greatness and righteousness are far beyond what you could ever fathom. Like we live in a day in the church, we don't talk about these things. We don't talk about God's wrath in the church. And even if we do, it's almost like we're apologetic about it. Like we're ashamed in some way of who God is. Like, ah, oh, I wish I didn't have to talk about these texts, but they're there, so okay. Like I think about my friend, Francis Chan. Um, some of our pastors were with him earlier this week and in his book on hell, he basically wrote a personal confession. He said, like the nervous kid who tries to keep his friends from seeing his drunken father, I've tried to hide God at times. Then he writes, who do I think I am? The truth is God is perfect and right in all that he does. I'm a fool for thinking otherwise. God does not need nor want me to cover for him. There's nothing to be covered. Everything about him and all he does is perfect. God, help us to realize that you are infinitely worthy of worship. And we are infinitely worthy of wrath. Like this is the testimony of scripture. We are sinners against a holy God, all of us, against an infinitely holy God. We deserve infinitely holy wrath, which means to follow this. What that means is we need God to save us from God. You put all this together. It's a very different way to think about it. Now, now we're not sitting on man anymore. We're sitting on God and we need him to do every single one of us in this room, other campuses, is one day gonna stand before this God as judge. Could be today for any one of us. And every single one of us will stand guilty of sin against him on that day. Which means every one of us will stand before him deserving of his just judgment and his eternal wrath. Which leads to the question, right? Like, what can we do? And the answer is, there's nothing we can do. All kinds of people today, all over the world, try all kinds of ways to appease God, practice this or that religion. Here, it's go to church, be a good person. But none of these things can eliminate the stain of sin and guilt on all of our hearts before a holy God. People say, well, isn't God loving? Can he just forgive us of our sins? This is where John Stott said, forgiveness is for God the profoundest of problems. 
And here's why. Because God's forgiveness of sinners is a threat to his holy character. Think about it with me. If God simply forgives sin and acquits sinners, then is he a just judge? No, if there was a courtroom judge today who knowingly acquitted guilty criminals, we would have that judge off the bench in a heartbeat. Why? Because he's not just. We decry unjust systems in our society as we should because we expect justice and so with God. If God is just and we are guilty, then the question is not why it's difficult for God to forgive us. The question is how is it possible for him to forgive us? Which then means we need God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And this, this is the great news of the Bible because God has done it. Now, now the amens can start again because God, this God has so loved a sinful world that he has sent his son. Jesus, to save us from the wrath we deserve. People say, why are we talking about God's wrath? And the answer is one, because it's real, and two, because seeing God's wrath opens our eyes to the wonders of God's love. We have no clue in the church today how in missing, ignoring God's wrath, we are minimizing our understanding of God's love. You picture it. It's like, it's like you and I as sinners are standing in the courtroom guilty before holy God, warranting his holy wrath. But God comes down off the bench to us and says, I will personally pay the price for your sin against me. This is what the cross is all about. Follow this. At the cross, so picture it. At the cross, God expressed his wrath towards sin. So God is a just judge. He does not pass over sin. No, God pours out the penalty of sin, death, and he pours it out on his son. And in this way, God not only expresses his wrath towards sin, but at the same time at the cross, God endures his wrath against sin. This is what Jesus was doing at the cross. He was enduring the wrath of God that you and I deserve. Oh, we can so miss this. We just focused on the physical picture of what was happening at the cross. And so, yes, the cross was physical. But we are not ultimately saved from our sins because of what a bunch of Roman soldiers decided they were going to do physically to Jesus. We are saved from our sins because of what God did, what Jesus chose to do on that cross. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's sweating blood. Why? Is it because of, he's afraid of what some Roman soldiers are about to do to him? No. You think about it. There are countless people who have died martyrs' deaths in the name of Christ since that day. And many of them went to their deaths singing. One man was being skinned alive in India. And he says to his tormentor, take off my outer garment. Today I put on a new garment of righteousness. Christopher Love's about to head to the gallows. He gets a note from his wife in the prison. And the note says, today they will sever you from your physical head, but they cannot sever you from your spiritual head, Christ. And he goes to the gallows singing with his wife applauding. Did they have more courage than Christ himself? Absolutely not. When Jesus is sweating blood in the garden, he is not... Uh, coward about to face some Roman soldiers. He is a savior choosing to endure divine wrath. Hear his prayer. Father, if it is possible, let this what pass from me. 
It's cup pass for me. What's this cup? Psalm 75, a cup filled with the fury of God's judgment due sin. Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, Revelation 14, a cup filled with the wine press of God's wrath due sinners. The reality is Jesus was sweating blood because he was about to endure all that we deserve in our sin. One preacher said, it's like you and I were standing in front of a dam 10,000 miles high and 10,000 miles wide filled to the brim with water. In an instant, that dam was let loose and that water came rushing like a torrent toward you and me. And right before it was about to overtake us, the ground in front of our feet opened up and swallowed every drop. So in a much, much, much greater way at the cross, Jesus took the full torrent of God's holy wrath Do you and me in our sin. He drank down every last drop of that cup. He turned it over and cried out, it is finished. Jesus endured the wrath we deserve and in the process so God expressed his wrath endures his wrath and in the process God enables salvation for sinners Jesus died for our sin three days later he rose from the dead in victory over sin and in this way God has made the only way for sinners to be saved from his wrath oh do you see it do you see See this relationship. I was in Hosea chapter 11 this morning. See this picture, this relationship between God's wrath and God's love. Becky Pippert said, God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race. He loves with his whole being. Oh, don't miss it. God loves us so much, loves you so much. He hates the sin that harms us so much that he sent his son to free us from it. God arose to establish judgment, Psalm 76, verse 9. Why? To save all the humble of the earth. So God, this God, desires to save anyone and everyone who humbles themselves before him. So I urge you today, Humble yourself before him. And turn from your sin and yourself today. In the words of Psalm 76, 11, make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let around, all around him bring gifts to him who's to be feared. In the words of Hosea 10, 12, break up this hard ground in your heart. It's time to seek the Lord that he might come and rain righteousness on you. And turn from your sin and yourself Turn to the God who's glorious above all, sovereign over all, to be feared by all and the judge of all. If you have never repented of your sin before God, I urge you to do that today. Like now, repent and receive the mercy of God before it is too late. I grieve. It so grieves my heart when people die in our culture with no evidence of turning from sin and self in their life and following after Christ. Yet you go to a funeral in a church and it's like everybody's assuming surely this person is with God in heaven when it's not true. And we desperately need to realize it's not true. Tozer said, the vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences of millions. It hushes their fears and allows them to practice all pleasant forms of iniquity while death draws every day nearer and the command to repent goes unheeded. I urge you, don't let the command to repent go unheeded in your life, right where you're sitting right now. This is not just a game. Like, 
There's, there's coming a day when you will stand before God as judge, and it will not matter on that day how many people on earth knew your name, how many people called you great. It won't matter whether buildings or schools or hospitals were named after you, whether your estate was large or small, whether your funeral had 10,000 people or nobody. It won't matter what newspapers or history books say or don't say. The only thing that matters on that day is what God will say. So turn from your sin yourself today. And then, oh, Christian brother or sister, stop toying with sin in your life today. Like so many of us have just grown casual with sin. Sin that warrants the wrath of God. Like, I urge us, let's, let's hate sin like God hates sin. Like it's killing you, it's destroying you. Sin has one aim, to damn you. That's, that's what it aims for. Like turn from it, cry out for God to give you grace. Jesus paid the price for that sin. He's paid the price not only to free you from its penalty, but its power in your life. So turn from it and trust in him. Some of you for the first time to trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And then for all who have, like trust him today and every day as the only one who can save you from your sin today. The Lord of your life today. I, I just, I, I want to urge every single person when the sound of my voice in line of Psalm 76, humble your heart in holy awe before this God. He is infinitely worthy of our worship. We are infinitely worthy of his wrath, yet he's made a way for you and I to be saved from himself for himself. So humble your heart now. So, oh, ladies and gentlemen, just mark it down. There's coming a day when every single one of us Every single person in Washington, from the lowest to the highest office of this land, every single person is going to bow before God. The only question that remains, the only, follow this, the only question that remains, that's a fact, the only question that remains is will we bow and worship before him now and receive his mercy, or will we bow before him when it is too late and receive his wrath? So here's, here's where I wanted to lead us, just to a time of real prayer before him. I say real prayer, just not monotonous, routine. Like, this is the God we're meeting with right now in this room and other campuses. He is with us. He is speaking to us through his words. So I don't know what's going on in the lives of the thousands of people who are listening right now, but you know what's going on in your life right now. If you have never turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord, I invite you, let this be the moment. In the next few minutes, just cry out for God to save you from your sin. Trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. His mercy is available to you right now. Right now, like in this moment, you can be saved, forgiven of all your sin by turning and trusting in Jesus. And then for all who have I praise God. Jesus has paid the price for our sin. But God, help us not to live casually with sin then flowing from that. That makes no sense. God, help us to hate sin. Like, so just spend time just confessing sin before God. Not in a way that like you need him to, 
Well, I, I just think about my kids. Like when they do something wrong towards me and they come to ask for forgiveness, it's not them saying, can I still be your child? Praise God. Like they're still my children and we are still children of God. But it's when you realize you've done something wrong against someone you love, you say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Help me, help me not to do that again. God is honored by that. And he's not honored by vain religious repetition, just going through the motions. He's not honored by that. So let's be real before him, just with what's going on in our lives and confess our sin to him and ask for his mercy, just in humility before him. God, help us, help us, help us. So... You can do that sitting where you are, if you want to kneel where you are, at your seat at the front of whatever room you're in. Like just, I just want to invite us to go before the Lord. I don't know how he is specifically speaking to your heart through this word, but I just want to invite you. It's time to seek the Lord. It's time to seek the Lord. And let his mercy, let his mercy just rain down on us as we do. Thanks for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. As always, you can find thousands of free gospel-equipping resources at our website, Radical.net. Whenever we think of church in America, we most often think of going to meet at a building, singing, praying, hearing a message from a pastor. But in many places around the world, believers meet in secret. They face all kinds of challenges and difficulties in meeting together. In some places, even at risk of losing their lives. So when they come together, they want to make the most of their time in a way that is different than what you and I are often used to. Well, Secret Church is our version of a gathering where we meet for an intense time of Bible study and prayer for our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing persecution. And the next Secret Church event is April 20th, 2018. Now, Secret Church is not for the uncommitted or faint of heart. If you want to know God more deeply through His Word and know His church more fully around the world, then Secret Church is designed for you. Registration for Secret Church 18 is open now. and So you can head over to radical.net forward slash secret church to join in or learn more. You can join us in person in Nashville, or you can join the tens of thousands around the world through the live simulcast experience. So again, you can find everything you need at radical.net forward slash secret church. David Platt's topic for Secret Church 18 is cults and counterfeit gospels. You don't want to miss this. Well, I'm your host, Thomas Bowen, and until next time, join us over at radical.net.